Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. Today I am joined by Mark Williams-Thomas, who is an investigative reporter best known for exposing the crimes of Jimmy Savile. Of course, we talk about that during this conversation, as well as his interview with Oscar Pistorius, who's been approved for parole in January, over a decade after shooting and killing his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. Mark's been very open about his belief that the shooting was a tragic accident, which we also discuss. And Mark shares some of the lessons he's learned through his career about the art of persuasion, speaking, interviewing, and the power of silence. And just to say, we recorded this chat just before Mark's latest piece of work on Baroness Michelle Moan and the PPE scandal. Mark Williams-Thomas, lovely to see you. How are you? Yeah, very good, Simon. It's, um, I was going to say it's been a long time. We have spoken in between, but of course we spent a lot of time together when we were at the LTA. I remember many mornings having a hit with you in the dome before work. Absolutely. You used to beast me in the gym as well. Yeah, I got you into the gym, actually. I think I got you into the gym. I think you did. Before you, and certainly before that time, I had a sporadic gym habit. But then around that time, it became a three, four time a week thing that's largely held, certainly until the babies popped along and that kind of thing. So thank you for that. That's all right. No, I mean, I gymmed every day. It was a great gym, wasn't there, over at the uh, tennis centre. Oh, and it? every day we'd go there, you'd come along and, uh, and you were pretty wimpy, I have to say. There wasn't much weight you could lift. <laughs> no. To be fair, Mark, you do have the sort of, rugby forwards build so I think we're coming at it from slightly different places I mean if we're going to throw insults around Mark you were a bit leaden footed on the tennis court as well so swings and roundabouts mate I uh, speed and the I've had speed but agility's never been my forefront yeah and I would say a lack of touch and finesse as well yes hit it as hard as you can sometimes that works <laughs> yeah what were you doing at the LTA? Remind me, because I remember you getting the Employee of the Year award pretty soon after you arrived. Yeah, I mean, it was a great time. Yeah, it was a great time. I came along and, and basically set up safeguarding for them, child protection. It was kind of in its infancy across sports. You know, there'd been a lot of work had been done. There'd been an offender court within swimming. And I think that what happened is the government, uh, Sport England, NSPCC you know, and the governing bodies thought we need to actually look at our own house and see that whether or not we're safe for children and young people to be involved. And that really kind of gave birth to a new you know, philosophy within sport that actually, do you know what? There are offenders who target individuals within the sport. So I came on board, set up safeguarding uh, within uh, the LTA and, and had a brilliant time you know some amazing staff that was there I loved it I'm a, I'm a sportsman through and through 
Uh, I've worked for probably most of the sports governing bodies now over the years. I looked after the British Olympics for two Olympics. I've worked for you know, Welsh Rugby Union, England Hockey. So I, I have a real allegiance to sporting. I, I did that at the LTA and we had a brilliant time. I loved it. Do you think that safeguarding in sport then has, has come a long way since that time? A huge way, huge way. I mean, of course, the last 18 months, we've had the report in British Gymnastics where there was abuse quite systemically identified across the performance element of sport. Uh, And sadly, that has existed across wherever you get adults and you get children together, of course, you're going to have a problem. What is incumbent on the sports is to make sure that they've got the safeguards in place at a grassroots level to be able to identify and then deal with very quickly. The problem with sport and tennis in particular, it's a one-on-one sport. Uh, And of course, you get really, really close, particularly when you're talking about performance level, you're very closeness between the athletes. And in fact, interestingly enough, I don't know if you watch the tennis uh, documentary, sorry, drama actually on um, Amazon recently. Uh, uh, I actually was the, the, the advisor for that. And so it was quite interesting getting back into that aspect of tennis again and and dealing with the whole, you know, the dynamics that exist between professional coach and professional player. But it's not just at that level, it's at grassroots level as well. So sports have come a huge way. They've gone really, really long way, but they've still got a long way to go. And actually, you know, you're never going to eradicate it. What you can do is just become far more aware and far more effective and efficient in the way that you deal with allegations when they come up. You said there about how when you have adults and people in a position of power coming together with young people and children, there's that that scope, that potential for things to go awry and abuse to happen. And we're very aware of that now, but it seems like it's not long ago that 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 was not something very much in the public consciousness you know certainly 80s 90s and we'll obviously talk about the Savile case which was a massive turning point in so many ways but why do you think that was a little bit outside of people's scope of consideration to the degree perhaps it should have been? Well, I think education is really important. I think people's awareness and understanding of safeguarding has has massively changed people's understanding of way of how offenders operate. You know, this concept of grooming, which is a real reality. Many people go back five, 10 years, didn't even understand what grooming was about. So what we've got is a far greater awareness. And some of that is caused by the media, you know, raising the awareness of offenders existing within the community because the reality is of course is the offender is most likely to be known to the victim you know stranger abuse is very rare uh, and but what the hardest thing is of course is then for that person to come forward because it's very difficult particularly when we're talking about an environment of sport yeah, it may well be that that person feels well, I can't say something because I'll lose my position or it means I won't be selected for this team or this team and particularly when people have got you know visions to rise up as high as possible you know even to an international level so it's very difficult and and what it does is it shifts the power imbalance whereas the child feels they have the power initially they don't because it's what switches over to the coach because the coach has got so much power and decision making in terms of what happens to that child so awareness is is absolutely key the media played a really strong role in that uh, and you know, and I think as a result of that we've become much more aware so the awareness makes a massive difference in as far as people coming forward and and enabling people to get caught right let's go back a little bit in terms of your career so you started out didn't you with Surrey police around 1989 what do you think the key skills you learned during your time with Surrey police that perhaps you wouldn't have expected or people perhaps don't understand about police work that then informed some of your later work oh I, I mean policing I wouldn't be where I am now if I didn't do policing Uh, It taught me so much. Interestingly, when I first joined the police service and and in the terms of the training, I remember reading uh, a a report that was done and said, you know, Mark needs to engage a bit more. He needs to talk much more. I don't stop talking now. Uh, So, you know, I've moved from one level to the other. It brought me out of myself. It gave me confidence. It gave me the ability to deal with any scenario. I mean, you, I, I run operations now. You have very complex operations to catch offenders. 
uh, gain evidence. And and the crew will often say to me, or the team will often say to me, nothing bothered. You just don't lose your rag, or you just never, you never, never out of control. And and I say no. You know, there'll be. I, I'm in a fortunate position. Is I, in terms of running those scenarios or running operations or dealing with incidents, I've dealt with them all. You know, there isn't a scenario you could throw at me that I couldn't deal with. So, you know, experience is really important. And I gained that from the place. You know, I gained calmness. It was one of the, it's a very funny scenario that I often give to people is that, you know, when I was taught to become, a, uh, being a police officer, you were told never to run to a job, never run to a job, <laughs> you know, walk faster, but never run because that kind of gives a, a lack of being in control. There's an element of exposure therapy there, isn't there, of just the amount that you have dealt with that you become somewhat immune to it. No, I don't think it's, uh, I, I think it's the context. So I, I get upset, I get sad about cases I deal with, and I get emotionally involved with them. And I think that's really important because the, you, if you're too emotionally detached, it, it affects in terms of how you deal with it. I deal with everybody that I work with as though it's my family. You know, I, I give them the attention that they require. But you also have to remain professional. You have to remain distant from that. I think the context of remaining uh, unflappable and calm is not only gives the confidence to those people around you that you're in charge, but actually it enables you to think much clearer. You know, when you are stressed, when you're in anxiety, when you're when those levels of adrenaline are kicking through your body, your response is very different than if you're able to keep your 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 blood pressure low, your your stress levels low, and then you can see it in a very different light. And that's really, really important. And you know, not everybody can do that. I think there is a real skill to be able to do that. Let me just ask you then, Mark. When we're stressed, when the adrenaline's going, when the cortisol's going, we react badly, we don't make good decisions, that kind of thing. Now, you spoke earlier about not running to an interview or walk fast if you have to. What other things could people learn from what you've picked up at the police force and since in terms of staying in control during stressful situations? Well, I think uh, there's a number of things. Uh, obviously, experience massively helps because if you've got the experience, you kind of can, can preempt what you're going to, to see and what's going to come across your plate. Although when in the early days of policing, it's quite interesting. You'd go to a job and you talk about the job in the car. This is going to we'll do this when we get there or this is going to happen. You get there. And it's completely different. None of that applies. <laughs> so staying calm is about being in a position where you you have the confidence to be able to make the decisions, clear decisions. You make those decisions in relation to considering all the facts that are around you. So it, it is it is about seeing the wide issue, you know, not just what's in front of you, but how is that affecting other people that are perhaps watching? Uh, very often when I deal with cases now, I think about what it will look like in five years time when a review is done in five years time or when someone scrutinizes this in, in six months time and says, well, why did you make that decision? So those are really important things to be able to think wider and listen, listen, take on board. I think as a, a particularly as a leader and someone who is you know, giving instructions or in command, what's really important is listen to your, your troops. You know, those people who are at the forefront of what's going on. Uh, one of the other skills, and, it, and these are skills that you develop over time. One of the skills is also being able to uh, assimilate information very quickly, relevant and irrelevant information. You know, so when I when someone comes to me with some information, I can quite quickly. And one of those key things is is reading a document and being able to, you know, concisely look at that and go, well, the key points are this, this, and this. So when you're presented with a situation, it's about very quickly looking at it and going, okay, what are what is the key issues here? What is it we need to get to the bottom of? And some people are terrible at that. You know, some people tell a story and it, it just goes on and on and on. You know, five pages when it could be done in in a couple of lines. And I, I always say to people, you know, I get contacted by people on a, an almost daily basis from people saying, can you help me with this? Can you reinvestigate this? Uh, and one of the key things I always say to people is if write it in a page. If you can't explain it in a page, 
then it's too complicated. And when pitches are really important, you know, I'm sure in your role as well, when we pitch to commissioners, literally, it's got to be something straight away off less than a page that they get it and go, I get it. Because actually, every single drama, every single documentary, you can tell that in a page. You don't need any more than that. Of course, you can put the, the meat on the bones. But if you need to tell your story quickly and concisely, that's a real skill. Yeah, totally agree. What about in those moments, let's say, where you have felt stressed? And we can talk about, again, some of your high profile cases, but there must have been times of where your heart rate is up, where your blood pressure is up, where you are feeling more anxious than you would like to do. In the moment, how do you get yourself settled back down? The key to remaining calm is to deal with multiple situations so that you have the experience of being able to do that. And also, I think it's about being in a position where you feel in charge. You know, you, it's very easy to lose sight of, of what's in front of you. And I, I have this great saying when I make television programs is that, um, you know, when something goes wrong or where you're presented with a situation, you know, I often say, no one's going to die. <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of the reality. Sometimes I, I, I kind of remind people that actually, do you know what? We're making television or we're doing this, we're doing that. You know, it's not, it, it, we're not in a critical situation where someone's going to die. And, and there's a phrase I often say to people, and it's so true, it's so true, is don't make your problem my problem. If it's your problem, I'll help you with it. I'll give you some guidance, but don't take it on as being your problem. It's your problem, not mine. Okay, let's move on to what's been your, you know, career defining work, the expose that really shocked Britain in a way that I don't think it's ever really been shocked before, which is obviously when in 2012, you finally exposed Jimmy Savile. Can you just give a very brief synopsis? Because you were tipped off, weren't you? So were you surprised? Because we all look back now and think, how did we not spot it? Did that strike you at any point? So I was I was over, Marion Jones and I, we went over to uh, Interpol, Leon, to, to film a report for BBC Newsnight. I was doing quite a few reports for BBC Newsnight. He was my producer, I was the reporter, and we went over and did this piece. And on the way back, just as we were about to get on the plane, he said to me, have you ever heard anything about Jimmy Savile being a sex offender? And I said, no, weird bloke, wouldn't want him anywhere near my kids, but never heard anything at all. And he said, well, it's interesting because either Surrey or Sussex police force investigated him for allegations of abuse. And I said, that's strange. I said, I've not heard that. I said, it must have happened after I left the police because otherwise I would have known about it given the line of work I was involved. Um, I said, no, so I, I haven't heard that. I said, but I can probably find out you know what it is about and I said what are you going to do with it he said well we can't do anything because he's still alive he said we've got so we've got a witness to an allegation and we've got lots of conversation online you know it needs a fair amount of work real still to be able to get it up but you know we're looking to try and do something and I said oh interested I said yeah I'd certainly be interested um anyway that was it and I didn't think much more of it I made the program for Newsnight uh carried on with other things and then Savile dies and literally off the back of that, Marion phones me up and says, Mark, we're going to make this program because we can now do it. We've got a reporter already, uh, but would you would you give us you know, expert a view? Bearing in mind, I've dealt with quite a few high profile paedophiles whilst I was in the police service. And, and you know, when I left the police service, I left uh, from their paedophile unit there, which I'd helped set up. And he and I said, yeah, of course, I'll give you an interview. No problems at all. Anyway, then it kind of fast forwards and. The next stage, really, I know, is that they're then trying to establish whether or not the police failed in their actions. They kind of moved on and the news editor at, uh, at Newsnight just completely missed the point. The point here was whether or not Savile was a sex offender, not whether or not the police had failed. That was secondary. But he couldn't see that. So they kind of got completely fixated. Did the police fail in their investigation? Yes, they did. But on the, on the face value, before you dig into deep, you'd go, well, they did investigate it. And you know, they, they ruled that there was no further action. So I found out that it was Surrey Police, gave the information to uh, the Newsnight. And then as a result of that, the Newsnight editor said, well, they've investigated it. We're not going to do anything more. Marion was furious and said to me, you know, what can I do? And I said, well, you know, 
I could potentially pick it up. I said, I have started to look around the internet. There's quite a lot of chat, but it does need a lot of work. And he said, I'll help you, whatever I can do. He said, I have to be really careful because obviously I, you know, I'm the BBC and you're ITV, but I'll help you all I can. And you're probably the only person that can take this story on. So I remember having an early meeting with the lawyers at ITV uh, on the sixth floor. Uh, and they, uh, they I mean, they're naturally n nervous anyway, because they're lawyers. Um, but they basically said, yeah, this is a massive task, Mark. I'm not sure. Anyway, and I said to the exec producer, Alex Gardner, I said to Alex, there's a story here. This is definitely a story, but it needs a lot of work. I mean, uh, something has been incorrectly portrayed. You know, BBC Newsnight did not have a, they had a story, but they didn't have the story. And I think actually had they have broadcast it, I think it would have fallen flat. I don't think, it, I, I, almost certainly, I know it wouldn't have got the traction that we had because we had to work incredibly hard. You know, 10, 10 month investigation to get the evidence we got. And even up into the, the last minute, Everyone was still nervous, so nervous. I mean, the, the interesting element of the, how the BBC dealt with it. I mean, it's a classic example of how not to deal with a crisis. You, they literally buried their head, thought that it would go away. Um, whereas, you know, we wrote to the director general and said, would you give me an interview? And all the director general needed to say was these are shocking allegations. We will launch our own investigation and we will find out what happened. It wasn't on his watch. You know, it wasn't down to him. But they literally no they came back and said there were you know there's no allegations there's nothing wrong um and you know that was their position you know we were wrong to to make this program of course by the time that the program broadcast uh, on the 3rd of october 2012 we'd had huge media coverage and, and it was one of those interesting ones because in the days prior to the program going out i said to my producer do you know what this has the option of going one of two ways either it will become huge and we'll uncover, you know, not just a huge abuse that was going on with Savile and others, but also other offenders. Or we'll never work in telly again. That will be the end of our careers. Uh, and it was a huge risk that we took. I remember my mum saying to me, Mark, do you really want do you really want to do this? I said, Yeah, I have to. And so we eventually got to the third of August program broadcast initially watched by 1.9 million people it's now been worldwide watched by i don't know probably hundreds of millions of people it's 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 gone worldwide and itv you know were very bold to take that decision to do it peter fincham was very bold uh, i've spoken to him many times since about it and it was a huge risk for them you know the itv is a is not a public server uh, public broadcast service you know they are shareholders so the risk for them is very different and yeah, they took it and we got it. And I handled all the media after that. You know, the fallout from it was huge. Uh, and I remember having a, uh, I was just about to do the press office wanted me to do the media show. And uh, that was set up for the Wednesday. And they, were, they said, Leo, whatever you do, you've got to do the media show. And I was fronting up all the media that was really going around in the early days and the very early part of it. Uh, this was literally just as broadcast, just before broadcast, and literally just after broadcast. And literally, as I was about to go into the studio to do the media show, the the press phoned me and said, "Mark, everyone's really worried. The media show is a really difficult show to do. You know, they're just really worried about you doing it." And I said, "Well, that's really not very helpful to tell me that literally just before I go into." Anyway, it was absolutely fine. The BBC uh, director was one of the BBC directors was in there. And they took all the flack uh, and they took all the flack because they didn't really know the story. And this is the massive you know, learning curve for any organization is that before you go in, do that, talk to your troops, talk to the people who are on the front line and they'll give you the story and listen to them. Don't go in there with the arrogance that, you know, I'm the director and therefore I know this. You don't. And you'll get you'll get pulled apart and they got pulled apart. And then I took a decision to not talk. I decided that I'd done my program. Let the program speak to itself for itself. Uh, so I, for two weeks, I said nothing. I just let everything else happen. And and it, you know, the BBC self-combusted. Uh, the director general resigned. Uh, there was huge, huge things going on. You know, there were people being arrested, the police, the children's services, the probation. I mean, everything went into meltdown. I mean, it, Tim Loughton, who was the children's minister, stood up in the House of Parliament and said, you know, um, Mark's program was a defining moment. You know, what he did was 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 incredible. Uh, you know, great recognition, I think, from that level. And you know, I stepped away until um, uh, until I got a phone call 
Uh, and I, they said, would you come back and, and talk again? And Nicky Campbell phoned me up and I know Nicky. And he said, Mark, would you come back and would you come and give me an interview on, on, on my program? I said, no, I'm not talking, not talking at all. He said, come on, let me convince you. And I said, okay. And I'd done a program with Nicky called On the Run, where we'd both been in court criminals. So I knew Nicky pretty well. And anyway, I said, go on, Nicky, I'll do it. And then I started speaking. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a defining moment. It happened because six people put their confidence in me to tell their story and look after them, protect them. And it, it changed people's lives. You know, I got a letter from the direct from the NSPCC chief executive who said as a direct result, and this was in the weeks after the program, as a direct result of your program, over a thousand children now and past have been saved from abuse. Massive. Yeah, seismic. And you did have those six victims. Why were you still uncertain? Well, because he wasn't able to defend himself. So he wasn't there. He was dead. And and it, to some degree, people would have just literally you know, dismissed them and said, well, they're after money. They're after this, you know, in the same way as anybody that comes forward with abuse. So we had to find as many victims as we possibly could. And we also had to find some similarities between them. Uh, but the similarities that were not connected. So none of the people that we put forward in for as the uh, victims knew each other. So they were all different. But their familiarity was the way that the offences were committed. We also obviously had to do huge due diligence on the people that we put forward because we knew that it would be picked apart. I ran it like a police operation. The, the hardness of it was, was to put something out there that the public were going to challenge an individual who had been held in such high esteem, who was so powerful. And even today, there's people who are convinced that he's not guilty. You know, I've had, as a direct result of that program, I've had threats sent to me. I've had a petrol bomb sent to me, you know, direct result of making that program. So I think the problem is, is that when you have an individual who's as powerful, who is as forthright as he was, BBC in those days, he was pulling in 11, 12 million people at a weekend. So, you know, to then be able to challenge that was massive. But we worked right from the bottom and it was about building trust. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, in terms of the six people that you had to persuade to trust you, to go onto television, to talk about their experiences with Savile, how did you really win their trust? And what can people more broadly learn from you? What sort of skills can people pick up and try and work on? So I think there's some real simple things. So, so trust is around honesty. Be honest with the person you're dealing with. Be truthful to them. Be, be straight. Be straight with them. Tell them this is what you're going to do. Inform them. Give them the knowledge. So don't hold stuff back. Be totally upfront with them. And if you do need to hold stuff back, tell them. So there's always scenarios where when I do an investigation, when I say to people, I will not be able to tell you everything as I go along, but I will tell you when I can't tell you something or I'll tell you what's going on. So I'll keep you informed. Keep them informed. There's nothing worse than dealing with someone and they just don't know what's going on. So give them a ring, update them. 
but build that trust. The trust comes over time. So it may well be you need to go have a cup of tea with them. You might need to go and spend a bit of time talking to them, not necessarily about the subject matter, but about getting to know them. Also share a little bit of you. You know, they, they want to know you as a person. So you're not a robot. You know, I think one of the massive differences with myself is that I live in a world of crime and I live in a pretty dark world. So there are people like you who know me away from that. So I very much have a, a kind of a different persona when I'm on television and when I'm dealing with those types of things and when I'm having a laugh, because I can have a laugh and I'm, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy those fun things. So there are kind of like two different marks, not in the terms of the way that I, you know, I'm still genuine in both of those aspects, but I present kind of a, a slightly different one because you have to, because it's all about being professional. Now, in terms of interviewing, because if I go back to what Savile was like, he was a tricky customer. He was notoriously hard to interview. He had props like his cigar. He famously pulled a banana out and started eating it when he was being interviewed by Andrew Neil. He'd always have this charade going on. If you had interviewed him, how would you have sought to combat his evasive tactics? I'd love to have interviewed him. I mean, I'd have interviewed him. I'd have taken him away from a safe environment, so an environment where he feels comfortable. So I wouldn't have interviewed him in his house. I'd taken him to a place that's quite that makes him feel vulnerable. Um, and then I'd, I'd have picked up on those bits as I go along. So when he then starts doing things to distract you, I would pick up on it and I'd say, well, why are you doing that? You know, you're distracting. Have I touched? Have I touched a nerve? Is there something that's slightly uncomfortable with you in the way that I talk about that? Um, and I would drill down. One of the key things about interviewing people is to start to get them in confidence. So what you do is you build that trust up. So you take them to where, what I would refer to as safe areas, areas they're happy to talk about, fear that there's non-confrontation in any way at all. And then slowly start to drift, drip feed in some of the other pieces of information. The thing about people is they love talking. And the thing about Savile is he loved talking. And actually now when you look back on the, the talk shows and the interviews he's given, he gives away an awful lot. He gives away an awful lot because he loved talking. Nobody picked up on that on the time. The other key point, of course, of interviewing is silence. Silence is really powerful. So let the other individual talk. The problem with a lot of of interviewers, a lot of high profile interviews on television is that they love their own voice more than they actually are there to listen to the person that's talking to them. They interrupt, they talk over the top of, they're very powerful in their talk. Whereas actually have a calm voice, have a calm demeanor and, and get them to talk to you. Yes, of course, there comes a point where you challenge them in respect of that. But only once you've downloaded as much information as you possibly can, let the key person talk and take that information in. So how could someone in a work environment or just having a difficult conversation use silence to their advantage then? Because it is something that we tend to avoid. It's a really powerful tool. It's a really powerful tool as an interviewer to get information from people. So don't fill the gap. We naturally try to fill the gap. When someone doesn't say anything, we try to fill it, but leave it quiet. It's, you've got to be careful doing it if it's like in a family or a relationship environment because it's quite intimidating. <laughs> Uh, when you leave that silence, um, particularly if you're leaving on a point when they've said something that's perhaps slightly controversial or slightly awkward. So, but in an interviewing process, get that information from them. Also be fairly reflective. When they tell you something, reflect that back to them. So when they say something to you, almost in a mirror image, you then reflect that back to me. This is what you're saying to me. So there's like a confirmation in terms of that's what they're telling you so that you understand, you know, they understand what they're saying to you because people talk and they don't necessarily always listen to what they're saying. They don't listen to the words that they're saying. So be reflective in terms of that. Also be detailed. You know, ask them about specifics in terms of, of what they're talking about and try and picture it. You know, when, when I tell a story, I try and picture that story so that the person listening to it can put themselves into that scenario. One of the other interesting things about doing interviewing, particularly if you're trying to establish whether someone's telling you the truth or not, is to pick up at certain points on the story. So you don't necessarily start at the beginning of the story. You pick it up halfway along. And then you tell them, get them to tell you, you know, a little bit of that story and then get them to tell you in reverse. Reverse is really good because it enables people to get tripped up if they're not telling you the truth. The other thing that's really important about establishing whether or not someone's telling you the truth or not is detail. When I interviewed Stuart Hazel, the exclusive interview of Stuart Hazel, who killed 
uh, Tia Sharp. He gave me that interview and he said, look, can you pre-ask me, pre-give me the questions? I said, that's not how I work. I'll be very fair. I'll be very honest with you. But he gave me so much detail that I then started to realize, do you know what? Actually, the more detail you give, the more suspicious I become of you. Why is that? Because people naturally forget things. People naturally don't remember the, the minutiae detail of everything they do, unless you know, you've, you're on the neurodiversity scale or some degree when perhaps you might do. But generally, day to day, people don't remember the minutiae of all the detail. If you go back and you have to create it because actually it's not happened in real life, you will fill those gaps in. So you'll then start to fill that detail, this, 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 and this. And particularly if that detail is you think some benefit to you. You know, in his example, he used the clock in the kitchen on the oven at 12 o'clock to be really, really crucial because he then got a friend nearby to then use that as a time that she left the house. So it was all a planned element for him. And so that's what happens. The more detail you get when you're talking to your kids and your kids you think are lying, if they're telling you too much detail, they probably are. What other little things are telltale signs that sometimes someone's not telling the truth? Yeah, being uncomfortable. You know, I think sometimes people are very uncomfortable. They're very, very fidgety. I'm very, very cautious about body language. Body language is not an interpretive element of when I do my interviews. It's a, it's an assist, but it certainly isn't a process. You know, when I watch these television programs retrospectively, when they go, oh, yeah, he's clearly lying because he was moving like that. Well, it's very easy when the person's being convicted to come along afterwards and say, yeah, that shows a sign of them, them lying. People's behavior is very different. The problem is, and we touched on it earlier in respect of, adrenaline you know when all those those elements are moving through your body your reaction is different and you could put four people in a room you could present them with the same crisis situation you know suddenly responding and and probably each and every one of them would respond differently or do different aspects of that that's because we use our own experience we use our own way of dealing things as to how we respond. You know, a classic one is Oscar Pistorius. You know, I got the world exclusive interview with Oscar Pistorius and people say, yeah, but why did he behave like he did? Why didn't he check that she was in, he was in bed before he then went to the toilet? Yes, I can see that. Why didn't he turn the light on? Yes, I can see that. But you're dealing with something in a crisis critical situation. You're having to do something immediately. And particularly when you're an, an elite athlete like Oscar, was you think much quicker than everybody else. Johnny Wilkinson, I always remember Johnny Wilkinson saying that he thinks 10 seconds quicker than anybody else. So Oscar Pistorius, you mentioned him. So he's, he's due for release on parole January 5th, I think it is. As you said, you were the only journalist to get the interview with him before he was convicted over a decade ago. So again, how did you do that where so many other people failed? I mean, that was pretty unique, really. I, I said to my producer, we'd finished Savile, and I said to her, I'm going to drop Oscar's team a message and say, I want an interview with him. So I dropped him a message and the team came back, you and everybody else, Oprah, ABC, everybody wanted an interview, CNN, everybody wanted an interview with him. And he wasn't doing any interviews, but I kept that relationship going. And then after about you know eight, nine months, I kept talking to them. And, I, and, I, and she came back, the person was handling their press and said, do you know what, you offer something different to everybody else. And then she said to me one Sunday night, she said, I can't guarantee it, but if you come over, you may get the interview, you may get it agreed. So I remember ITV agreeing, I jumped on a Virgin's red eye flight, flew over there, got to, landed, literally went straight into the meetings with the lawyers, expecting and hoping that we were going to get agreement and sign off. And the lawyers basically said, there's no way he's going to give you an interview for the here before the court case and and uh, Oscar's uncle Arnold was felt really bad I think because you know I traveled all the way over there and so we had a meal that night I didn't see Oscar I saw Bri Oscar briefly but I didn't talk to him anyway we kept talking and then I basically said just prior to the trial I said to them would Oscar give me an interview just talk to me just literally on the eve of him being sentenced and he hadn't talked to anybody else and she said yeah go on come and see him and Oscar will talk to you so I sat down with Oscar I was actually, I was listening to the audio recording the other day. I sat down, recorded it all, then did an article in the Mirror, which was a world exclusive a chat with Oscar just prior to the sentencing. I was there for the, you know, the for the, uh, the the trial, and and then I did an inter a full interview with him. I I got a phone call from Arnold, and uh, I remember being at home and. 
Arnold, the uncle, phoned me up and said, Mark, are you still interested in doing this interview? And this is like two years later. And I'd kept that dialogue going with them. I'd even been over there and been on, been um, with Arnold in his helicopter flying to one of his game reserves. And uh, he said, we'll do it. Get yourself over here and we'll do it. So I flew over there with Simon Cowell's right-hand man, the two of us, over there, Nigel Hall. And we uh, we got over there, spent time with Oscar, best part of a week, really, and signed him up. No money, signed him up, because, of course, we couldn't pay because he was a, a, a convicted in Israel at that stage. And then I spent on and off best part of two, three months with him, in and out, interviewing him. Uh, and I've been back and seen him in jail twice. And, uh, you know, I've taken a lot of grief. I take a lot of grief by supporting him. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that. But just quickly on this then, how you won his trust as well. Clearly, part of persuasion then is persistence. Oh, yeah. They must have said no so many times, but you carried it on. And actually, the uncle, interesting you say that, the uncle said to me, do you know what? You've never given up. I'll let it lie for some periods of time. You know, sometimes you drop a case for three, four months and then you pick it up again. There's a persistence to me. Not an irritant persistence, but a persistence. That's really interesting because a lot of people will hear a no and give up immediately, won't they? No means, you know, in terms of that, then potentially if I keep talking to you, they might, I mean, sometimes people say no and you clearly know it's never going to happen. But other times you think, do you know what? Actually, I'm not going to just walk away at the first hurdle. You know, I... It's about finding another way to do it. So you said you've got a lot of stick. You've been supportive of Oscar Pistorius. You say that you believe he's an honest and a caring man. What led you to that conclusion? Because you know a lot more about it than me, but I looked at a few things. There did seem to be some evidence that contradicted some of what he says. I'd never met Oscar prior to, obviously, this case. So I only got to know him after that. I spent a lot of time with him. I've spent a lot of time talking to both parties, you know, both the prosecution and his supporting side. I've seen all the evidence. And when you put it all together, you know, Judge Masipa made the right decision. Uh, in terms of her belief that it was a, you know, effectively an accident. Yes, okay, that got overruled through this uh, whole process of um, shooting into a door that, you know, by the very fact of shooting into the door, the likelihood is you were going to, to kill somebody. And I understand that and accept that. But he was very clear, you know, this was a tragic accident. There is evidence to support a heightened element of his life, which was about threats that he'd had, and fear of home evasions. Unless you've been to South Africa, you really don't understand the concept of home evasions over there, how people break in. People get shot all the time in their house. You don't hear about it. It happens all the time. I mean, there's a very well-known South African rugby player who woke up in the middle of the night and uh, he woke up because he heard his daughter's car being driven off the drive. He walks uh, to the window across above the stairs and sees his car, his daughter's car just about to drive off. He gets his gun and he shoots the driver. He then goes to check his daughter and his daughter's not in bed. Oh, he shot and killed his daughter. Gosh. He didn't get prosecuted. But, you know, that very nature of behaving in that manner. So it is shocking. There's a police officer, there was a police officer in South Africa at the time who'd shot into a, a toilet, a, a bathroom door and killed the individual inside who was heavily pregnant. These things happen. You know, people don't really know about these stories. So when you start to then go into the detail of it, but he is a... He was in love with her. He was absolutely in love with her. Uh, and the evidence supports the fact that there was no argument that night. And the evidence supports that he woke up and, and tragically, very sadly, believed that there was an intruder. And of course, it wasn't an intruder. It was Reva in the toilet. Didn't neighbours say they did hear arguments? Yeah, multiple neighbours say they heard arguments from very, you know, some, some distance away. But also people saying they didn't hear anything at all. Um, and so the you know, we stood on the balcony. I got into his house, actually. We, we ran a bit of a roost to be able to get into. They wouldn't let any journalists in there. The whole place was on lockdown. And we went in there in a tradesman's van, hid the camera and everything, small camera in the, in the back. And we managed to get in. And I spent the best part of two and a half hours walking around the house itself. And actually, we did quite a lot of studies. I went on my knees and we walked from the bedroom into the toilet. And um, yeah, we, we, we did some, you know, some real work within that house. I've actually been inside that house and, and filmed within there. And yeah, the evidence that they heard people shout uh, screams off the balcony, I, they're just not possible. And actually, Judge Masipa agreed that that wasn't possible. So what sort of stick have you had then about this and, and how has it impacted you? Oh, huge grief. I mean, grief with, with 
social media warriors, you know, who said, you know, you're misogynistic because you have a view of supporting a killer. You know, he should be in jail for the rest of his life. Um, I mean, the problem is anyone that knows me knows that I'm the least misogynistic person there is. Look at the work that I've done. It shows that that's absolutely not, you know, I'm an absolute advocate for for um, you know, violence against women. I think there's a huge amount that needs to be done around male violence. Uh, you know, males are perpetrators of, of violent crime, overwhelmingly, absolutely no doubt about that. And, and actually education needs to learn an awful lot to protect women. And actually it's, it's gone backwards. So, you know, and, I, and I've talked about the misogyny that exists within the police service, which has been shocking. And so I'm very outspoken in relation to that, but also the aspects of, to suggest that, you know, anybody that goes to jail should remain in jail for the rest of life. Yeah, some people should. There's no doubt about that. Those that present a risk to society. But but there is a position where people need to have both restorative and, um, you know, punishment. And, and those two elements, I think, for some offenders do exist. I was at a national policing conference talking a couple of weeks ago and a judge was there. And it was actually the judge that's done the review on the Manchester bombings. And he spoke very clearly about, you know, there are people in jail that, that should be released. And, and those people that are on, you know, gone to jail for murder, some of those do need to be released. And the, and the sentencing is wrong. And it was, quite, it was quite refreshing listening to a judge talking about that. But I understand it divides people. It divides people massively. But I can only talk from my personal experience, but also with real clarity over the evidence. And also to understand that actually... He, sh- he shot and killed us, killed Reaver and took a life. That can't change. He's been punished for that. He'll be punished for that for the rest of his life, both you know, through the criminal justice system, the public, and also torment in his own head, because he does torment himself about that. He, he, you know, he, he says, I, I, you know, if I could turn back the, the day, of course I would. But I do think the time now is right. And it's not just me that thinks the time is right. It's all well and good criticising me. The parole board have. You know, these people have criticised me. I've gone back to them and said, so were the parole board wrong? So any of the comments you make to me as being misogynistic, as being, you know, completely wrong, are those members of the parole board, they're also all misogynistic, are they? They've all got it wrong? What's your relationship like with the Steenkamp family, with Reva's family? I've spoken to them, you know, during the program, we we spoke a number of times. I tried to get them involved in the program. They didn't want to be, but we told them and and everything that was in the program, shared everything with them. And, uh, you know, they were very clear in terms of their position. It's so difficult. You know, they've lost a loved one. And, And for that, I understand, I totally understand why they would want Oscar to jail for the rest of his life and to be punished. I get that. And I don't think there's any moving away from that. And, and no way do I set to minimise that in any way at all or to undermine that. They are parents of a child who's lost a child and anyone who's lost a child won't want the, yeah, they've lost theirs. Why should they have freedom? But that's a subjective view. And I'm able to look at it objectively with all the evidence. What do you think his life will be like when he is released? What do you think the reaction will be like? Because you said you think he's got a lot to offer. Um, he's still got things he can do in the community. Do you think he'll be afforded that opportunity? Not initially, no, because he's such a massive, you know, there's three of the most famous people in, in South Africa, you know, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Oscar Pistorius. Huge, you know, huge status. I mean, I, I've covered two of the biggest cases media in the world, which was Madeleine McCann and Oscar Pistorius. And and Madeleine was huge, but Oscar Pistorius was on another level. You know, there was world media was there. And so he's going to get a hard time initially. You know, he's going to have to go into home home lockdown because of, you know, going out, everyone's going to want photographs of him. So it's going to be very difficult for him in those early days to to integrate himself back into uh, the community. I've I've had contact with the family uh, since, you know, since his... uh, uh, the news that, that he's going to be released. But, you know, eventually we'll settle down and he has a lot to offer. There's no doubt about that. You know, this is a man who was an Olympian, you know, and a uniqueness in terms of what he's got. And, and yes, he did wrong. But does that mean that everybody who's done something wrong should be punished for the rest of their life? Is there redemption at all? How's he changed in jail? I, I mean, I haven't seen him recently. We had lockdown and, and I haven't been able to see him since. But uh, 
I saw him a couple of times prior to lockdown. I went to see him in jail and he was, you know, those other people have said, you know, he's got a really cushy life in jail. That was not cushy. I mean, I'm not going to divulge the conversations that we had, but, you know, he was, it was amazingly, amazing listening to him. He was not put on any platform at all by other people in jail. The things that he was doing, the things that he was made to do in order to get get on with other prisoners, violent, aggressive prisoners. Um, and he's a clever guy. You know, he was able to, uh, to, to basically switch and knew how to kind of like live within prison life. You know, South Africa prisons are some of the most dangerous prisons in the, in the world. And so there was no easy, and it was all well and good people saying, yeah, but he was moved to a place where there was, uh, you know, he was able to grow fruit and, and uh, um, farm. No, these were, this was a dangerous prison still. He was in luxury, non-existent. I mean, they, they would, <laughs> there were times when the place literally just flooded. You know, the showers, the water flooded, and they'd have to lift their bed and everything up off the water. There would be water. I mean, if you can see jails in the UK, compare them to his jail and jails in South Africa, world apart moving on from oscar just throughout your career you've worked with some really disturbing individuals does it shake your faith in humanity yeah human beings capable of the most deprived behavior and i'm always aware of that i think i have to keep some context is there are some amazing beautiful people out there and lovely people and and the reality is is that i deal with the minority but the majority are great it's always the minority we deal with minority we please the minority we respond to the minority the minority object to things the majority just get on with it and uh, and so it is a minority that i deal with what's important of course we don't lose faith in humanity um but i'm very aware that the, the depravity of the human being in in what they can do and carry out is just unspeakable and and i've seen the worst of the worst i mean i i wouldn't want anybody to have to live with some of the things that i live with uh because i've seen it through my life you can't get rid of those what you have to do is understand them and what you have to do is deal with them and i've you know i've gone through certainly over the last three years huge huge learning you know i had a mental breakdown I was in a very, very bad place and and I've slowly built myself back up again now. And it's very true. You have to get to the bottom before you can pick yourself up. And not everybody can do that. You know, sadly, there are many people who suffer mental health, particularly men, because it's a higher rate of men than it is of women who don't feel they can talk and there isn't anybody to listen to and, and they take their life. But, you know, thankfully, I'm here because life is for living. It's very short and we have to live every day. And but we have to talk. We have to have, surround ourselves with the positive things in life, wake up every day. And we can all wake up every day depressed or we wake up every day and go, do you know what? Shit happens in life. But what am I going to do that's positive today? And perhaps it's doing something for a loved one, helping somebody, doing something that makes you feel fulfilled. Whatever it is, find that little thing in life every single day. Right, Mark, listen, it's been a pleasure seeing you again. I'm so glad we got a chance to uh, to catch up and reminisce. And uh, thanks very much for coming on. Simon, you're a star. Look after yourself. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. And just a reminder that my debut book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself, published by Bloomsbury, is out on January the 18th. In it, I share some of the best lessons I've learned over the last five years or so on things like avoiding burnout and developing emotional intelligence. But I also really want to challenge the sort of success evangelism that we hear so much about, which implies that continually chasing success out there in the world sometime in the future will give us what we really want, which is to feel content and fulfilled internally. Now, drawing on some of my favorite conversations, I'm arguing that culturally we have it the wrong way round and that we're looking basically in the wrong places and that genuine peace and contentment is actually so close that we tend to overlook it. But once you do recognize it, it is an absolute game changer. Please do check out the link in my show notes to find out more.